Today is Charles Darwin's birthday. He was born a little more than 200 years ago on February 12, 1809. In recent years, his birthday has been known as International Darwin Day, an annual opportunity to celebrate the principles of perpetual curiosity, of scientific thinking, of hunger for truth that guided his life. One tragedy of the ongoing um, creationism versus evolution debate is that coming to terms with Darwin's theories of evolution, of natural selection, of common descent, those were among the greatest intellectual challenges of the late 19th and early 20th century. But we today are living in the early 21st century, long past the point at which evolution became settled science. As Unitarian Universalists, our forebears were among uh, the earliest religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting implications of Darwin's findings, that we are not uh, a little lower than the angels, but rather a little higher than the apes with whom we share a common ancestor. We know that at the DNA level, there is only a 1.23% difference between humans and chimpanzees. 1.23%. We humans are not a uniquely special creation. We are Homo sapiens sapiens, a subspecies within the larger animal kingdom. As our UU seventh principle affirms, we are deeply interconnected with the other forms of life on this planet and with the other ecosystems on this earth. And we are called to practice a respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we too are a part. So this year, the approach of Darwin Day inspired me to finally get around to reading the best-selling book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. How many of you have read it? It's, I really do recommend it to you if you um, haven't, or you two can let me know if you, what you thought about it afterwards. It was published in 2015 by Yuval Harari, a professor of world history. Uh, this sermon interests you again. It really is a fascinating book. This morning, I'd like to invite us to reflect on what does it mean to take seriously our place in the universe as merely one species among many, as well as the consequences of what happens when we deny our place in the grand scheme of things. Danielle spoke about that a little bit in the meditation earlier. Consider this paragraph from the beginning of Sapiens. If you were to go on a hike in East Africa about two million years ago, you might well have encountered a pretty familiar cast of characters. Anxious mothers cuddling their babies, clutches of carefree children playing in the mud, temperamental youths chafing chafing against the dictates of society, weary elders who just wanted to be left in peace, chest-thumping machos trying to impress the local beauty, wise old matriarchs who had already seen it all. Those archaic humans played, they formed close friendships, they competed for, you know, to be stars and for power. But here's the thing, so too did ancient chimpanzees and um, bobos and elephants. There was nothing, baboons, sorry, there was nothing special about humans and nobody, least of all humans themselves, had any inkling that we, their descendants, would one day walk on the moon. You know, split the atom, fathom the genetic code, and write history books. The most important thing to know about prehistoric humans is that they were insignificant animals with no more impact on their environment than gorillas or fireflies or jellyfish. 
A mere 150,000 years ago, there were about one million, one million of us humans wandering around on this planet. Today, the world population of humans is 7.3 billion and growing, with an overall growth rate of one new human being added to that total more than once every second. And far from uh, the negligible impact on the environment that our uh, you know, ancestor, our one million ancestors had 150,000 years ago, since the 19th century Industrial Revolution, human-created climate change from the high-impact lifestyles of the increasing numbers of us uh, are hurtling us toward a potential sixth mass extinction on this planet. Today, we Homo sapiens sapiens are massively dominant on this planet. But that's a relatively recent development in the 4.5 billion-year-old history of Earth. Many of you can likely recall seeing T-shirts or similar cartoons uh, depicting evolution as this move from left to right of having a, you know, an ape on one side, then it begins to kind of stand upright, and then you have kind of a less developed caveman, a Neanderthal, going all the way up to usually a, a man in a suit wearing a briefcase, you know, with a briefcase or something. But that episodic linear progression is actually misleading. The word human means animal belonging to the genus Homo. And humans first evolved in East Africa about 2.5 million years ago from this earlier genus of apes, Australopithecus. And from about 2 million years ago to just about 10,000 years ago, at least six different human species all lived together at the same time. We lived at the same time as Neanderthals and other um, species of human. Just as today, there are different species of cats, of dogs, of bears, etc. Evolution is messy and complicated, just like life. And we humans used to be in the middle of the food chain. We hunted and ate smaller creatures, and larger creatures sometimes hunted and ate us. However, through major innovations like the domestication of fire and increasingly sophisticated human language, we jumped to the top of the food chain with shocking speed in evolutionary terms. Harari writes, other animals that have been at the top of the pyramids, such as lions and sharks, they evolved that position quite gradually over millions of years, not 10,000 years. This allowed the, the ecosystem to develop checks and balances that prevented lions and sharks from wreaking too much havoc on their environment. So as lions became deadlier, they thinned out the gazelles, and the gazelles that survived evolved to run faster. Hyenas to cooperate better, rhinoceroses to become a little more bad-tempered. In contrast, humankind ascended to the top so quickly that the ecosystem didn't have time to evolve. Moreover, we humans failed to adjust. Most top predators of the planet are majestic creatures. Millions of years of dominion have filled them with self-confidence. We, by contrast, are more like a banana republic dictator. Having so recently been one of the underdogs on the savannah, we're full of fear and anxiety over our position, which makes us doubly cruel and dangerous at our worst. Becoming more aware of this dynamic can at least give us some hope. As the saying goes, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. Now, there's a lot more to say about the history and implications of our species' evolution, but in reflecting on the implications of what does it mean to be sapiens, I'd like us to consider not only genes, but also what are sometimes called memes. A gene is a region of DNA that is passed down biologically from parent to offspring, right? And from a certain perspective, the more of your DNA that survives, the more you can be seen as winning at the game of evolution. 
In contrast to a biological gene, a meme, it's from the same Greek word that gives us mimic and mime is an element of culture, you know, Memes existed before the internet, right? It's not just about internet memes. It's about elements of culture that are, instead of being passed down through biological genetics, go passed down through social imitation. To give you an example of the difference, if you uh, visit the corner over there of our property here at UUCF, you'll see some white boxes that are beehives. And uh, if you were to properly, safely investigate those beehives under proper supervision, you would see they have these incredibly complex social structures. But that's all instinctual genetic behavior from bees. Bees don't need lawyers, for example. They don't have to go to law school to have lawyers because there's no danger that a bee might forget or violate the beehive constitution. You know, the queen doesn't cheat the cleaner bees of their food, and uh, the bees in turn don't go on strike demanding higher wages, right? These things are all memes, not genes. In contrast, for us humans, many of our laws and customs are precisely formed to shape us in ways that are counter to our, what our natural, genetic, selfish instincts might be to just, you know, perpetuate our genes as much as possible. And here's another crucial point about memes versus genes. It takes a conscious effort to sustain our laws, our customs, our procedures, our manners. Otherwise, our social order can actually collapse quite quickly. Indeed, whereas genes are inherently biological within us, memes are artificial instincts. They have to be taught. Consider, for example, um, the second sentence of our Declaration of Independence, written by our Unitarian forebear, Thomas Jefferson. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody else hear Hamilton in their head when you read that these days? Anyway, uh, Jefferson writes about these truths as natural laws, inherent, almost genetic, and built into the order of things. But an evolutionary biologist might say, Mr. Jefferson, you're not actually right about that. You might invite us to consider um, that what an actual genetic perspective tells us, that from that perspective, Jefferson's soaring prose might need to be rewritten as, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all humans evolved differently. They are born with certain mutable characteristics, that among these are life and the pursuit of pleasure. Similarly, similarly, our UU first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person. A major influence on that choice was the 1948 United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. The very first line of its preamble recognizes the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Likewise, following the preamble, the very first sentence of Article 1 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights says, all beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. I find it to be profound and powerful and hopeful to be part of a religious movement that has explicitly chosen to weave into our first principle the starting point of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. But a Darwinian perspective invites us to be honest that those claims are more meme than gene, which is a reminder of how precious and precarious some of our deepest values are. There are many vital aspects for our culture that we shouldn't take for granted. If we don't defend them, they can be lost. As the saying goes, history may not exactly repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. So what are the lessons from the history of our species, sapiens, that can help us predict what might the future hold? 
One lesson from history is that there have been five previous mass extinctions on planet Earth. So we have every reason to take seriously the existential threat of human-created climate change, that it really could cause a sixth mass extinction on this planet. Uh, Harari writes that some people call climate change the destruction of nature. He said that from his perspective as a professor of world history, it's not actually destruction, it's just change. Nature actually can't be destroyed. We can be destroyed. Nature can't be destroyed. 65 million years ago, an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs, but in so doing, it it cleared a way for mammals to evolve. Today, humankind is driving many species into extinction. We might even annihilate ourselves. But other other organisms are doing quite well. Rats and cockroaches, they're in their heyday. These tenacious creatures would probably creep out beneath the smoking rubble of a nuclear Armageddon, ready and eager to spread their DNA. Maybe 65 million years from now, intelligent rats will look back gratefully on the destruction wrought by humankind, just as we can think that dinosaur-busting asteroid. Now, is that really going to happen? The truth is, the past few months have been a good reminder that no one really knows what's going to happen tomorrow, much less 65 million years from now. Yuval Harari, author of Sapiens, has his guesses. I saw recently that he has a sequel due to be published in about a week called Homo Deus. So instead of Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens is wise ones from the Latin um, word sapiential, meaning wisdom. Uh, um, So Homo Deus is um, gods, so the species of Homo that have become like gods. It's the subtitles of Brief History of Tomorrow. And it picks up on a final line of sapiens in reference to how powerful our species has become. So Harari concludes with this haunting question. Is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible little gods who don't know what they want? I'll be interested to read Harari's more extended reflections, but I'll say for now that there are many ways that I still remain hopeful. From an ecological perspective, there are ways in which we as a species at 7.3 billion and counting can indeed seem to be dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what we want, acting more like cancer cells than immune cells. But the spirit of resistance and resilience in recent days has shown that many of us do know what we want, actually. For many of us, one articulation of what we want is found in our UU7 principles, that in the face of bullying and divisiveness, we support the inherent worth and dignity of every person without exception. In the face of selfishness, cruelty, and greed, we support justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. In the face of religious fundamentalism and orthodox dogma, we support the acceptance of one another and the encouragement to spiritual growth based on your experience of what you know to be true. In the face of anti-intellectualism, propaganda, and fake news, we support a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. In the face of authoritarianism and the undermining of constitutional norms, we support the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process. In the face of isolationism and tribalism, we support the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all. And in the face of destructive individualism, we support a respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we too are a part. We've had a steady, we've always had a steady stream of visitors here at UUCF, but we've seen a significant influx, much higher than normal in recent weeks. Uh, in today's world, our UU values of freedom, 
of reason, of pluralism. They're needed more than ever, and I think people are sensing that. And we offer a sanctuary here. We can nurture your spirit when the latest news feels too heavy to bear. Our beloved community is a reminder that you are not alone. And together we seek, again, to create a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all. I began this morning with a reminder that today is Darwin's birthday, an annual opportunity to reflect on these principles of perpetual curiosity, of scientific thinking, and hunger for truth that guided his life. From certain angles, it can feel bleak to reflect on the implications of what it means that we humans are merely a subspecies called sapiens. But Darwin himself would invite us to reframe that view. So on this International Darwin Day, I'll conclude with the final paragraph of Darwin's 1859 book on the origin of species. He writes, From the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, the production of higher animals, that naturally follows. And whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful, most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. I'll share with you just two quick things. Um, this whole idea of genes versus memes, of what is you know, instinctual and harder to get rid of and what is artificial instincts of culture, uh, two other examples of that, and we've discussed many of these before, uh, are both that gender is a social construction and that racism is a social construction, that both gender and race are meme and not gene, so that we know, for example, when you just take a look at history, you see how much the history of what is masculine, what is feminine, has just wildly changed over time, and certainly, and, and as you start to see that, you can start to differentiate between sex and gender, right? So sex is what we get genetically that affect, affects our physical appearance, but gender is are these social constructs that we, these social scripts that we learn, or that people try to teach us about what it means to be. Um, masculine or feminine. And as you become aware of that, we can say, we don't have to do it this way, right? Uh, the same thing with race, to see that we now know scientifically, genetically, that we are all, all humans are 99.9 plus percent the same on the DNA level. and But because of um, various contingent quirks of history, we have chosen in oppressive ways as a species to make these artificial divisions based on skin pigmentation that have no deeper impl implications other than cruel ways to order your society. So again, seeing that can help give us the courage to do things differently. As some of you have heard me say before, racism is real the way that Wednesday is real, you know, we, and, and, and we can dismantle it if, if we choose to. Uh, Nietzsche had uh, a sort of derisive saying that he would said that his sort of takeaway from Darwin was that humans are just interesting pieces of meat. Uh, responding to that, the, philosopher, the late philosopher Richard Rorty used to say, actually, saying that humans are clever animals doesn't have to be pessimistic. It can also be quite hopeful. Because saying that we are clever animals means that actually we can make ourselves in many ways into whatever we are clever and courageous enough to do. 
uh, but the choice is our, on us, and the onus is on us. Um, Rorty used to say that what he had learned in his life, he came from this line of Baptist ministers, is that um, uh, that you. it turns out it is actually possible to substitute hope in the next world for one's individual salvation. So I'm going to be good because I want to go to heaven, right? What's sometimes called fire insurance, right? That I, you know, I'm going to be good for, so that I individually can go to heaven in the next world. He said, it turns out you can substitute those individual hopes for salvation in the next world for social hopes, for hope in the world you're going to leave for your grandchildren. That you can say, I want to be good in this world because I want to live in a world that is compassionate and caring and that's the sort of world that I want to hand out and that that is can be equally or even more motivating um, so that that's that's the opportunity we have if we choose it to to learn how to be more immune system cells than cancer cells on this planet so as you discern what your piece may be on that of bringing an evolutionary perspective to your life invite you to do you have sure Oh, very good. Okay. If somebody lost a ring, um, I'm going to leave that. Uh, actually, come, instead of leaving it, I'll, anyway, if you're missing a ring, let me know. So that'll be there. So as you, um, as we prepare to go from this place, what does it mean? What is your choice? What part can you even individually play? And invite you to continue your journey in love, to care for one another and to care for this one earth, to do justice and to make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, whatever glimpse you've had into the possibilities that we clever and courageous animals, the way the society we might form together, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.